Welcome to Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a Left Behind Reread podcast. I'm Aaron, your host, and this week, we'll watch an important VHS and talk about why I hate Rayford more than any other fictional character ever. Last time, Ray's daughter Chloe returned from Stanford, and Buck was nearly killed by a car bomb. Today, in chapters 11 through 13, we're going to see a lot of anti-intellectualism and literally the worst speech ever. Make sure to stick around after the recap for a short apocrypha where we'll discuss real-life rapture messages. Chapter 11 starts with Ray and Chloe going on an evening drive to New Hope Village Church. Right off the bat, Ray tells the reader that Chloe floated the notion of dropping out of Stanford and taking classes nearby, which he's for some reason super happy about. Listen, I understand wanting to be close to your family after a tragedy, but don't be so damn gleeful about your kid dropping out of Stanford. Jeez, Ray. When they get to the church, Chloe asks if she has to come in. Ray says he'd appreciate if she did, and she reluctantly follows. Inside, they meet the lone remaining staff member of New Hope, Bruce Barnes. Bruce is a man in his early 30s, described as, quote, short and slightly pudgy, with curly hair and wire-rimmed glasses. He greets them warmly, then introduces them to Loretta, an older woman who looks, quote, sunken-eyed and disheveled, as if she'd come through a war. Bruce gives them the post-rapture videotape he's been distributing, but he asks if he can speak with them for a few more minutes. Ray agrees, and they head into the former pastor's office. Bruce explains that he doesn't use the departed pastor's desk, that he still uses the office because if God calls him to take over the work of caring for a new congregation, he wants to be ready. Chloe asks if God will call him by phone, which is a weirdly snarky thing to say to a guy you've never met. Unfortunately, this is going to be a thing during this scene. Bruce counters by saying that after the last few days, he wouldn't be surprised by anything, including getting a phone call from God. The disappearances have frightened him immensely because he knows why they happened. Chloe asserts that he only thinks he knows what happened, but that plenty of other people have different, self-serving theories. She believes he's just claiming God caused the disappearances because he wants to remodel the church. Bruce sits back, waits a beat, then asks if he can just tell his story without any interruptions. He says he doesn't want to be rude, but he doesn't want her to be rude to him in return. He asks her just to let him get all the way through, then afterwards she can say whatever she wants about his theory and never return if that's what she wants. Ray, astonishingly, loves that his daughter is getting talked down to. I really hate this sequence because nothing in our understanding of Chloe's character thus far would lead us to believe she's the kind of person to tear down a stranger over their religious beliefs. Yet, she does it multiple times after meeting Bruce, whose only recourse is to shut her up. I don't know if it's because Chloe is young, or a woman, or educated in California, but for whatever reason, the authors make her the stereotype of a self-important liberal, eagerly taking shots at your sincerely held beliefs for no other reason than to be mean. This sucks, and its suckiness is only compounded by how happy her dad is to see her shut down. Bruce continues on, first explaining that Loretta is the only one left of her whole family, which used to number over a hundred. His emotional state isn't much better, as his wife and three young children were all raptured as well. He recounts his own experience, reading a magazine in bed when he felt his wife get up, only to realize later in the night that she was nowhere to be found. When he discovered his one-year-old's onesie empty in the crib, he knew exactly what transpired. He met Loretta at the church that night, and they've been running the place ever since. Ray presses Bruce, asking why he was left behind while his family was not. Bruce tells him the truth. He counted too much on the forgiveness of God, and thus believed it was okay to go against his teachings. Immediately, the first sin he recounts is not giving 10% of his income to the church. 
As a Midwesterner, talking about money skeeves me out, so my red flags are already raised. Bruce says when he visited people at nursing homes, which was his job, he prayed and read scripture with them, but he never did that on his own. Which seems like a bad distinction to make. I'd argue it makes you more of a Christian to share the word with others, but no one asked me. He admits to skipping his visits to sick and elderly folks and opting to watch a movie instead, and purchase dirty magazines. Lastly, whenever people asked if New Hope was the kind of church that stressed Jesus before all else, he was very uncomfortable about discussing it. He pins his being left behind on the fact that he counted on God's mercy to save him, but never made any changes to his sinful behaviors. He figured after the rapture that his soul was forever doomed, but thankfully, his old boss made a tape to let them know they still had a chance at redemption. Chloe asks why Loretta didn't make the cut if her whole family was Christian. Bruce responds that Loretta never truly invested in her faith, and while she just went along with the way the rest of her family practiced, she never really gave herself over to Christ. Chloe says this whole business of being saved or damned is kind of wild, but Bruce disagrees. That's why it's more important than ever to become a real Christian. Bruce makes the point that the message of this rapture tape is the most important one they're ever going to hear. To be a real Christian, Bruce explains, is that they must first see themselves as God does, which is to say, as sinners who are unable to rescue themselves. He goes out of his way to say that most people would say that getting into heaven involves being a good person and living properly. But that's not the way Bruce believes it works. Good deeds are what one does because they were saved, not something they do to earn salvation. This might seem like a weird hang-up, but I'd argue most branches of Christianity agree that humans do not save themselves and are instead supposed to do good works as thanks to God for his mercy. At the same time, the Catholic in me is very skeptical of a theology that undercuts the importance of good works, as that seems kind of important. Anyway, Bruce continues to list off pretty standard Christian talking points. Jesus died for our sins, we put our faith in him, our sins are thus forgiven, we now have a relationship with God and have eternal life, etc. Ray is very excited about all this. Bruce asks if he's ready to receive Christ right now, but Ray asks for a little more time, despite his enthusiasm. He says he comes from a background where logic and analysis are very important, and he wouldn't want to rush into anything so quickly. He takes a copy of the rapture tape, and he and Chloe head home. But before they do, Bruce gives them a warning not to put off their conversion to Christ. Quote, What would be worse than finally finding God, and then dying without him because you waited too long? We switch over to Buck in chapter 12, who makes an apologetic phone call to his father. He explains that the news will report he's been killed in some sort of accident. His dad is understandably concerned, but Buck assures him he'll explain as soon as it's safe to do so. His dad asks if he'll be able to attend his sister-in-law and niece and nephew's funerary services the next day, which makes me wonder if the entire world is just hosting funerals at the pace of a McDonald's drive-thru. Buck explains it would be kind of a dead giveaway if he showed up at the service, so he is going to miss it. His dad asks if the people who tried to kill him will be upset when they find out he's not dead, and like... Yeah, Dad, I suspect they will be. Buck also leaves a disguised message for his editor Steve Plank to let him know he'll meet up with him ASAP. Meanwhile, Ray and Chloe drive home from New Hope Village. Ray feels a desperate urge to study scripture and pray about what's happened, as well as to get Chloe on board the rapture train. It all seems very obvious to him, but the message just isn't getting through to her. The news is full of stories about crime, accidents, and general societal breakdown in the aftermath of the disappearances. Ray recalls an anecdote about grieving people checking graves for the bodies of their loved ones to see if they had vanished, as well as grave robbers hunting down buried valuables under the same pretense. 
Ray asks if Chloe wants to watch the tape with him, and she declines. He presses her to watch it while he's at church the next day, and she tells him that if he keeps trying to force his belief on her, she's going to be pushed away. He begins to back off, before coming in with, I'd really like to have you settle this thing before our flight Monday. Air travel is becoming more dangerous, and you never know what might happen. Like, dude, she just told you not to push it, and then you come at her with, well, that's fine, just make sure you convert before you maybe die in a plane crash. The series constantly bombards the reader with imagery of death and violence, all with the goal of scaring you into taking their point of view, and it's really, really gross. When they arrive at home, Chloe turns in early, while Ray stays up to view this rapture tape he's been itching to see. He's greeted by Vernon Billings, the former pastor of New Hope, who informs the audience that this is a message to be viewed only after God has taken his people into heaven. Vernon points to 1 Corinthians 15, 51-57, which reads as follows. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ray doesn't really get all the scripture, but he hangs in there. The priest explains that while the rest of humanity will be left on earth, the believers in God will be literally taken up into heaven. He accurately predicts that one day, millions will vanish, including all babies and children, and that general chaos will ensue. Vernon claims this is God's last attempt to get the attention of the remaining people on earth who didn't believe in him before. He will allow a seven-year tribulation to destroy the planet in order to test the faith of those who remain. Most significant of the warnings given in this tape, however, is the warning that a great lie will be told to the world by a deceiver of men who will be known as the Antichrist. This person will come out of Europe and will be instantly popular with the remaining humans. The pastor warns that because of this Antichrist, even if they convert to Christianity, they will still probably die martyrs' deaths. All of these thoughts tear at Ray's mind. But of one thing he is certain, this pastor has presented the most coherent explanation for the vanishings he's heard thus far, and he can't stop until he knows what to do next. The pastor warns that World War III will occur, which will be the catalyst to usher in the Antichrist's reign. He also says God's not happy about all the death that's going to happen, but it's necessary so that bad people throw themselves on his mercy. Above all, it's necessary to devote one's life to Christ to ensure they make it into heaven one way or another. The pastor leads a prayer, which Ray follows along with. Ray acknowledges his sins and lets the love of Christ into his heart. He prays for Chloe, that she will soon make a similar conversion. Back at JFK Airport, Buck calls Steve Plank, who excitedly informs him Nikolai Carpathia himself wants to speak with him. His friend Chaim Rosenzweig, the Jewish scientist from Chapter 1, is serving as an advisor to Carpathia, so he must have put in a good word. Buck is elated at this news. With the help of Nikolai Carpathia, he assures himself that he can be rid of Jonathan Stonigal and Joshua Todd Cothran. It's at this point I want to take a brief moment to dunk on Buck. Hey Cameron! For an international journalist, you're unbearably naive. You just learned all this stuff about a major player in Europe with powerful financial backers who murdered your college friend literally yesterday, 
and now you want to hang out with this newly popular president of Romania? You're killing me, man. It's Sunday morning now. Ray spent all last night reading the Gospels, and finds it hard to contain his excitement to go to New Hope. Chloe tells him she'll eventually tag along, but for now, she's just not ready. Ray rewinds the videotape anyway, just in case she decides to watch for herself. When Ray arrives at New Hope Village Church, he has to park three blocks away, there's so many people. Bruce greets the massive crowd with the same story he told Ray yesterday, then shows the rapture videotape to the congregation. Apparently a hundred people experience conversion at the end. At the end of the ceremony, Bruce opens the floor to anyone who wishes to discuss their faith journey, and scores jump at the opportunity. Five hours after the service began, Bruce cuts everyone off because they all need to eat. He teaches them a quick song to close up, and Ray describes it as the, quote, most moving moment of his life. So, like, we're moving a bit fast, aren't we, Ray? After church, Bruce asks Ray to join him for lunch. Bruce expresses how happy he is to have a huge new flock of followers, and Ray nods along, knowing that Bruce is just lonely. Since they're getting along so well, Bruce asks Ray if he'd like to be part of a semi-exclusive leadership team to start rebuilding the administration of New Hope. While this is innocuous as of now, this leadership team will actually become the core group of characters throughout the rest of the series. When Ray returns home, Chloe peppers him with questions about the service. Even if she doesn't act on it, her father's devotion to this new cause makes her at least want to see the next service for herself. She also brings up the fact that Hattie Durham called a few times, and Ray admits that he's been avoiding scheduling her on his flights. He resolves that one day, Chloe will know the truth about them. Ray calls Hattie, who actually doesn't bring up flight assignments at all. In a state of shock, she reports that a journalist on their last flight was killed in a car bombing in England. Ray is not actually super interested in a guy he's never talked to, but he is interested in making things right with Hattie. He invites her over for dinner, as they have a lot to talk about. When we return to Buck in Chapter 13, he's sitting in JFK reading his own obituary. It lists off several of his accomplishments, including winning a Pulitzer Prize immediately upon starting at the Global Weekly, which is maybe the clearest example of a Mary Sue I've ever seen in fiction. The obit goes on to pin his assassination on the IRA because I guess Buck was a huge supporter of Margaret Thatcher or something. And now we switch back to Ray, I guess, after giving Buck a single page of exposition. Don't worry though, Buck's about to snag the interview of a lifetime here in a bit. Ray and Chloe drive back to O'Hare, looking around at the destruction that still litters the highways. Chloe points out that a god of love and order is who Ray believes caused all this mayhem, and Ray confirms the assertion. The previous night, she attended Ray's special inner circle meeting with Bruce, who was giving a primer to a few skeptics, but she left halfway through because she couldn't get on board when they started talking about Satan and original sin. Ray says that he knows he's a sinner, and that everyone in the world is too. Chloe asks if he thinks she is also a sinner, and he says yes. She says she's not a sinner on purpose, and doesn't try to hurt anyone else, and Ray counters by asking if she thinks she's exempt from the teachings of the Bible. It's super duper uncomfortable for this dad to come on so strong and try to push his ideology on his daughter so hard. Christians would not be cool if this was literally any other religion Ray was pushing, and the dude needs to back off. Cut back to Buck and JFK, who is finally picked up by his editor, Steve. I keep reminding you that Steve's his editor, because I don't know why you'd bother to remember him. Buck fills Steve in on his theory that he can use Carpathia to defeat Todd Cawthorn and Stonigal. Steve thinks he's a fool, but Buck asserts that Carpathia is just a pawn, and doesn't know about the murder stuff. Steve goes on to say that he actually met Carpathia that morning, and he's the real deal. Again, he's compared to a young Robert Redford, and he speaks nine languages. Buck, 
Ever the intrepid journalist asks which nine. Steve reports that he speaks Arabic, Chinese, English, French, German, Hungarian, Romanian, Russian, and Spanish. Buck sees the through line. Three languages, German, Hungarian, and Romanian, are from his native country. The other six are the official languages of the UN. Did y'all know that the UN had official languages? I looked it up, and it's true. Also, this languages thing is going to come up again in a sec, so hold on to this information. Ray and Chloe fly to Atlanta, then Ray is immediately scheduled to fly a 747 back to Chicago. I don't know why they bothered to include this part of the story in the first place, except, I guess, to keep Ray busy before the Antichrist pops up. During the two-hour delay before they fly back, Chloe and Ray catch a cab to get lunch. Their cabbie asks if they want to see a, quote, truly unbelievable sight. They agree, and she takes them to a vantage point where they can see a huge parking garage with cars still stranded after the vanishings. They have cranes dragging vehicles out of the side of the structure in order to free up space. Ray asks if the cabbie lost people, and she says she did, but she's saved now. To drive the point home that Chloe is obviously an idiot, she says, quote, You got to be blind or something not to see the light now. When they get lunch, Ray confesses his interest in Hattie to his daughter. She's disappointed, but glad he never acted on his desire. He says he justified his interest in Hattie because Irene was so obsessed with Christianity. Chloe responds that her devotion is what kept Chloe from doing anything that they might actually hurt her mom's feelings. Apparently, Irene said she was praying for her every time they exchanged letters. I really hate how much pressure the story puts on Irene here, as well as the fact that her religiosity is apparently an anchoring force for her children. It's not uncommon for mothers to bear the expectation to keep their families out of trouble, but Left Behind positions her faith as the reason Chloe didn't do much worse stuff. And that's just an unhealthy expectation to have. I don't think there's anything wrong with being devoted to your beliefs, but expecting someone to believe so strongly that it prevents others from behaving poorly? That's a recipe for disaster. Anyway, Chloe explains that she still isn't really believing any of this religious stuff about the end times. She has to be, quote, intellectually honest with herself. Let me read part of this section just to help hammer in the message of anti-intellectualism. Quote, It was all Rayford could do to stay calm. Had he been this pseudo-sophisticated at that age? Of course he had. He had run everything through that maddening intellectual grid, until recently, when the supernatural came crashing through his academic pretense. But like the cabbie had said, you'd have to be blind not to see the light now no matter how educated you thought you were. So to be clear, LaHaye and Jenkins believe education is bad for your spiritual life. That's why there's no religious people with advanced degrees, right? It gets worse. I'm just going to keep reading. Quote, I'm going to invite Hattie to dinner with us this week, he said. Chloe narrowed her eyes. What, you feel like you're available now? Rayford was stunned at his own reaction. He had to keep himself from slapping his own daughter, something he'd never done before. Hey, dude, she's 20. Maybe you can give your kid spankings when she's five, but, like, if you hit your daughter, that is a crime, my man. Rayford, despite having recently converted to Christianity, still sucks. Chloe makes the point that Ray has gone straight from hitting on his flight attendant to trying to convert her, which is such a change of heart that it gives me whiplash. Ray strongly denies any attraction to Hattie now, saying that Irene's disappearance was like losing her to a sudden traumatic accident. He just wants to clear his conscience and make sure he gives Hattie a chance to be saved, too. So, um, for, like, the one straight dude who listens to this podcast, here's a tip. If you're interested in women for a long time, but are suddenly no longer interested, don't tell her. 
Don't make her do the emotional labor of processing your mixed emotions. It sucks. Either tell her now, or back off. Ray, at 43, apparently doesn't have the level of relationship wisdom as I, a 24-year-old who injured his thumb playing Pokemon over the summer. Over the course of this episode, Ray has shot to the number one position in my ranking of fictional villains. Let's switch back over to Buck, where Steve is preparing him for this interview with Carpathia. He gives him press credentials with his fake name of George Orskovich, so he can get into the UN without causing too much of a stir. Buck worries that by using a cover identity instead of his high-profile name, Carpathia won't agree to interview him, and like most politicians, he's all about image. Steve is suddenly very interested in getting Buck to sit down with the Romanian president, much more so than a few chapters ago. Apparently, after having spoken with Carpathia, Steve has completely jumped on board the train, saying that if they don't run a story on him, they'll be the only national magazine that doesn't. They sneak Buck into the UN building and get him ready for the press conference in the General Assembly. After several minutes of waiting, Carpathia and his advisors enter. Carpathia is described as, quote, an inch or two over six feet tall, broad-shouldered, thick-chested, trim, athletic, tanned, and blonde. His thick shock of hair was trimmed neatly around the ears, sideburns, and neck, and his navy-on-navy pinstripe suit and matching tie were exquisitely conservative. Even from a distance, the man seemed to carry himself with a sense of humility and purpose. His presence dominated the room, and yet he did not seem preoccupied or impressed with himself. His jewelry was understated. His jaw and nose were Roman and strong, his piercing blue eyes set deep under thick brows. Again, definitely want to focus on that description of him as being Roman and not Romanian. This is the second time that distinction has been made, and I'm not sure if it's significant or not. Secretary General Munganti Ngomo of Botswana introduces Carpathia. Also, if anyone knows how to properly pronounce that name, please tweet at me. Carpathia takes the podium and proceeds to deliver what the authors of the book believe, apparently, to be the best speech literally ever. However, as someone who has listened to at least one speech before, I assure you, this speech blows. His speaking pattern is described as being passionate, humorous, and precise. He doesn't need to use notes, and he seems to possess a photographic memory. He doesn't use contractions, he enunciates every syllable of every word, and most horrifyingly of all, he uses every one of the nine languages he knows, then translates them back into English. So we know already that this speech is unnecessarily long. He starts out by describing the history of the UN, as well as citing the exact dates of its founding and first meeting of the General Assembly. Then, in maybe the most upsetting part, he begins to list off literally every country that is a member of the UN. As of 1995, there were 184 countries in the UN. Can you imagine sitting through a speech where some guy rattles off 184 names and thinks it's a baller move? Left Behind is more of a fantasy story than Harry Potter if you think that everyone's going to lose their minds over a list of names. But that's exactly what happens. People are applauding and holding back tears as this dude rattles off names. They start standing up. Quote, More than five minutes into the recitation, Carpathia had not missed a single beat. He had never once hesitated, stammered, or mispronounced a syllable. Buck was on the edge of his seat as the speaker swept through the T's and reached Uganda, Ukraine, the United Arab Emirates, the United Kingdom, the United States of America. And Buck leapt to his feet, Steve right along with him, along with dozens of other members of the press. Something had happened in the disappearances of loved ones all over the globe. Journalism might never be the same. Oh, there would be skeptics and those who worshipped objectivity. But what had happened to brotherly love? 
What had become of depending on one another? What had happened to the brotherhood of men and nations? It was back. The chapter closes out more details of the speech without ever discussing its substance, only the effect it had on the listening audience. Carpathia discusses various aspects of the UN, working in the name of every former UN Secretary General, there had been seven total since 1995, and includes the exact dates of their installation and retirement. He also praises each of the 18 UN agencies, current director, and host city. Chapter 13 ends thusly, quote, This was an amazing display, and suddenly it was no wonder this man had risen so quickly in his own nation, no wonder the previous leader had stepped aside. No wonder New York had already embraced him. After this, Buck knew, Nikolai Carpathia would be embraced by all of America, and then the world. I beg of you, listener, to imagine a man from Romania reciting the UN's Wikipedia page and watching as hundreds of diplomats and journalists around you burst into applause. That's what Lehay and Jenkins imagine what happens when a charismatic person takes their first steps towards conquering the world. <sighs> I can't do this anymore today. Firstly, I don't like how chapter 11 emphasizes that Bruce is not forgiven until at the very end. Uh, there's a real push to say that God's forgiveness does not necessarily extend to you, and that definitely is a huge bummer. I also hate how pushy Ray is about his Christianity. I mean, it's I don't think it's a spoiler to say that eventually Chloe does give in and will become a Christian, but he just constantly, constantly cajoles her and forces this this belief on her and it makes me so grossed out with ray i think he's more motivated to see his family again than actually having a sincere belief in christianity i mean he converts over the course of a couple days and i've been watching a lot of the good place lately and if you've seen that show you know that there's a part where they talk about how if your motivations are corrupt you don't get any extra good points and i think that's sort of the case here ray is wanting to see his family more than anything else than really actually wanting to be a good person. So I'm already pretty skeptical of Ray, aside from all the terrible stuff he says and does with Chloe. However, I do love slash hate that the authors consider Nikolai Carpathia to be the most charismatic man in the world, even though he's basically just a walking encyclopedia. This vision of the Antichrist is so specific and also very bland. It combines the evangelical fear of intellectualism with the belief that globalists are weak and easily manipulated, and it's almost the high point of the book for me because it's so absurd and weird. In this week's Apocrypha, we're going to do a quick dive into the business of leaving messages behind after the rapture. Pastor Billing's VHS about what to do following the rapture might seem strange to the uninitiated, but for those who believe in dispensationalism, the practice is fairly common. A cursory glance around the internet will tell you that just about every vaguely evangelical blog and website contains a post similar to the message described in chapter 12. They explain that in the event of a worldwide mass disappearance, these left-behind messages will give readers the best chance at surviving the tribulation. To give you an idea of the quality of these messages, I'm going to drop the intro to one such video from our friends at Lamb and Lion Ministries right here. Millions of people have suddenly disappeared. Maybe you even know some of them, a loved one like a husband, a wife, a friend, or your little child. And if so, you've been desperately searching for where they could have gone, and you just can't find them. And I know you're scared, and you probably fear that you too may just as suddenly disappear as they have. You have lots of questions, I'm sure. Top-notch stuff. I do actually recommend you go watch at least the first minute of that video. 
because it's hilarious. However, some people have seized on this opportunity to help out those who want to send messages to the people remaining after the rapture. Various services allow believers to add emails to a newsletter, which will only be sent out in the event of mass vanishings. A Wired article explains that for only $40 a year, you could upload 150 megabytes of documents to you'vebeenleftbehind.com to be sent to your loved ones once you've been raptured. The way the website ensures the rapture has indeed occurred is that it will trigger the messages after three of the site's five founders do not log in for six consecutive days. I like that they accounted for at least two-fifths of them being fake Christians and absolutely do not account for the possibility of the rapture happening after they all die. I just love the idea of some poor people getting a bunch of wild messages in like 40 years because there's no one left to prevent those data from being sent out. Another service, titled Eternal Earthbound Pets, promises to retrieve and care for your animal companions once you've been taken into heaven. The founder, an open atheist, claims that if the rapture occurs within 10 years of payment, he and his staff will track down your furry friends and take care of them while the rest of the planet is savaged by God's fury. The LA Times reported the cost of this service starts at a basic rate of $110, which is pretty cheap for 10 years of pet insurance. Um, dozens of other places claim to perform tasks for you after the rapture takes place, but I think it's important to highlight the fact that they almost all cost money. I think Dr. Sidney McElroy of the Sawbones podcast has a similar outlook on scam medicines as I do to these services. As long as it's not hurting anyone, it's probably fine, but if it's expensive, buyer beware. That'll bring us to the end of our show. Please don't forget to give us a 5-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you're just as obsessed with this stuff as me, consider recommending the show to a friend. Follow at RapturedPod on Twitter for news about new episodes. Follow me on Twitter at AaronSXL for more hot takes on a 25-year-old franchise. Hope you all have a great week. This has been Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a podcast of the Earth's last days. (laughs) 